over so it'll reach. Um, remember, this Saturday is the children's ministry training. So it's from 9 to 12.30. Make a note of that. Come on out if you're, if you're free to, to come and share in that time. It'll be a really good time. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible, no doubt. Oh, it's fine. Some people have said that the book of Romans is the ring around the gospel, that chapter 8 is the diamond in the ring. It's where it shows us how to live in light of the gospel. Paul's been laying out for us the importance of understanding salvation by grace. And in chapter 8, he shows how it works because people realize, okay, I understand that I'm saved by grace, and yet, at the same time, how am I supposed to live in light of that? And we are so used to living under the law, we're so used to a legalistic understanding of obedience that to live under grace is, is difficult for us to grab the concept. I think most of us understand easily that living by rules hasn't worked. We've all tried it. You try to discipline yourself. You try to make yourself become a better person. You try to reform yourself. And we all realize that doesn't work. The trick is, what do you put in place of that? And Romans chapter 8 really gets into that. Romans 7, as we saw last week, talks about the struggle that's within us because our flesh is still very much alive and still drawing us away from righteousness. And so even though we're grateful for God, just, just being thankful to God for his forgiveness isn't enough to change our lives. We, we need something more. And Romans 8 introduces that to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. It also... Um, well, later on in the book, he gets into even more detail about it, but Romans chapter 8 is basically Paul talking about walking in the Spirit, living a Spirit-controlled life, because ultimately, the only hope for us to, to get any better is for the Holy Spirit to do it from within. Try to make ourselves better from the outside doesn't work, we know that. It generally tends to only make us phony, alienate us from others, cause us to feel superior, or cause us to feel defeated. And either way, doesn't make for a pleasant life, legalism. To just kind of blow everything off and go, well, you know, I'm forgiven, praise the Lord, and, and just go on with your life, doesn't really make the change in your life that you need. Now you go... Oh, wait a minute, why do I need to change if, if Jesus has forgiven all my sins and if it's impossible for me to make myself perfect, why is it even a big deal whether I sin or not? And again, that's a typical response from people who have been raised in a legalistic system, who have been so indoctrinated to believe that somehow what you do is what determines where you go for eternity. But the truth is, it doesn't. It can't. And so, and yet, that doesn't mean there's no reason to want to be good. The, the real reality is the reason why our lives change when we become Christians, the reason they should change, is because sin is killing us. And sin is destructive. We often try to motivate people by saying, you know, that sin is an offense against God. Sometimes it's hard to get your head around that concept because, for one thing, any improvement that I make is a drop in the bucket compared to the sins that I'm bombarding God with all the time. And then he's so used to it, it's hard to just start you know, feeling sorry for God and therefore wanting to change. But really, God doesn't want us to stop sinning for his sake. And... He wants us to stop sinning for our sakes. The reason he hates sin is because of what sin does to us. And so 
it starts for us with confessing our sins, admitting that God's right about what he says is right and about what he says is wrong, and then our motivation to please God, definitely. But even beyond that, the motivation that God lays before us often is to stop killing ourselves, to stop messing our lives up, to stop being so miserable all the time, to stop being bad witnesses to others because we make the Christian life look like something really crummy and and undesirable. And so Romans 8 lets us know, here's how this works. It's, It's called walking in the Spirit. Now, he begins the chapter in verse 1 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's so important that that is our foundation. Because nothing that he is saying is intended to condemn. In fact, there's nothing that anyone should be able to say to us that would cause us to feel condemned. Because there is... Therefore, now, therefore, on the basis of what he's been saying, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anytime you feel condemnation, you're either putting it on yourself, the enemy is putting it on you, or some possibly well-meaning person is returning back to the old covenant and trying to lay condemnation on you to try to manipulate you into being a better person. Their motives may be good, But that's not how God motivates us, through condemnation. Now, the verse does say, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so some people see that and say, Well, there's no condemnation as long as you're walking in the Spirit. Um, Walking in the Spirit isn't an option. Walking in the Spirit is what Christians do. Paul's trying to help us to see how to more effectively do that. But he's not saying that there's no condemnation to only certain Christians. Now, also, um, some of the older manuscripts don't have that last phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Um, They don't have that in in verse 1. Now, in general, I don't automatically go with the older manuscripts you want to look at whenever there are manuscript differences and analyze how those differences might have come about. In this case, it's pretty clear because when you go down to verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Exact same phrase that fits much better with the context of verse 4. So maybe Paul said it twice in verse 1 and verse 4 you can easily see how a copyist error could jump ahead and write it in verse 1. The fact that it's not there in some of the older manuscripts causes me to at least wonder whether it's supposed to be in verse 1. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really change the meaning of it at all. It's definitely in verse 4 in all the manuscripts. But the point is, let's begin with this foundation of no condemnation. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. So put away from your head, any kind of motivation that involves condemnation. And you can take it to the bank. If if someone is hitting you with condemnation, that's not coming from God. That's not how God motivates his people. Four, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's a law of life. It's the law of the spirit. And there's a law of sin and death. That's the law that we used to live under. That's the law of the flesh, basically. Not necessarily the Old Testament law, but it's the rule that causes us to always do stupid things. And so he says there are two ways that you can live. Live under the Spirit's law, and that leads to life. Or you can live under the law of the flesh and... That leads to death. So you can, he's laying out two different ways to approach life and gives you a fairly easy way to analyze your own life. And again, it, this can change sometimes on a moment by moment basis. 
But how alive are you? How much are you seeing freedom in your life? A life of freedom is characteristic of life of the Spirit. And a life of misery, a life of slavery, a life of condemnation, a life of death is life according to the flesh. Now, there are some people who will say, oh, I'm really free. I do whatever I want. Well, how's that working for you? How's your life really developing? Are you, are you experiencing joy? Is your life starting to look more like Jesus Christ? Because if it isn't, then you're fooling yourself with your freedom. Freedom, if it's freedom according to the Spirit, will always give us a better life. It'll make us more... Uh, in love with him it'll cause us to be obedient without making it look like work it'll cause us to bring life into other people's lives it will cause us to bring joy wherever we go Um, this is the life of the spirit Um, a life that's destructive if you go yeah I'm totally free and what you do with your freedom is do things that are going to destroy you and destroy others That's not the kind of freedom he's talking about. You know, I'm free to kill myself. Um, It's not what he's saying. There are two different laws. There's a law of the spirit, and that's a law of freedom and life. And there's a law of the flesh, and that's a law of sin and death. 4, verse 3. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law couldn't do something. The law was really good at what it did. It showed you that you're a failure. Showed you that you can't run your own life. That you just can't trust yourself. Um, it did that well. But it had a problem because once it led to you realizing that you're guilty, it was not able then to fix what's wrong with you. So, I mean, it helps to recognize that you're not doing a good thing. I mean, if someone's living enslaved by sin, certainly the first thing they need to acknowledge is, I'm messing up. I'm sinning. I'm doing what's wrong. And that's why in most recovery groups, for instance, they start out by getting you to admit you have a problem. If you don't think you have a problem, of course you're not going to get any better. That, that kind of reform doesn't work. I, and I've talked to people many times who, you know, they'll say, yeah, you know, everybody's trying to get me to stop drinking, so I guess I will. I guess I'll... You know, I should probably at least drink less. Um, And, you know, special occasions and, you know, once in a while. And I don't know if this is going to be forever, but I think I'll quit drinking for a little while just to show I can do it and to shut them up. And, you know, that usually doesn't lead to changed life. It's short-lived. And even recognizing, though, I am a hopeless addict does not automatically change your life. That only takes you so far. Um, It's a necessary point. And what the law does for us is very necessary to realize what we're doing to ourselves. But what, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross opened the door for us to go way further than that in order for us to really have victory over this sin that's been destroying us. And so he says that, that the, whole, the whole point of it is the law was weak, but God sent his son, took our sin on himself, and he condemned sin in the flesh. He, he defeated sin. So it's not right for us to say, well, you know, because of what Jesus did on the cross, I can just go ahead and sin and it doesn't matter. It matters. That's why he went to the cross was so that we could defeat sin. And just because on this earth we don't completely have victory 
over sin and over the flesh, don't miss the point that that's what it's all about. The Christian life is all about how can we get to the point where we're not ruining our lives? How can we get to the point where, where things can change and our lives can be a, an example to others and beneficial to others? So getting rid of sin is a critical part of being a Christian, of walking in the Spirit. But you don't start with that. Don't put the cart before the horse because if you try to get rid of sin, you're just going to get frustrated because now you're depending on your flesh and it's the same as, as during the law before Jesus died. So he says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That is, everything that you always wanted, everything that in Romans chapter 7 it said, man, I want to do what's right, but I can't do it. He said, good news. Because of what Jesus did, you actually can see your life change. You actually can have victory. And he makes it clear later that this is a struggle, this is a little at a time, but you can move in that direction, you can experience real victory over the sins that are destroying you when you learn to walk in the Spirit. And the more you walk in the Spirit, the more that the point of the law ends up being um, exhibited in your life. And people should be able to look at our lives and say, that person is different. There's a holiness there. But when they do that, what should be striking is it doesn't look like we're trying. It doesn't look like we have to. We're not trying to pay for anything. We don't think we're better than anyone else. God's just changing us from within. 4, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's all about your thinking. How are you controlling your mind? Where do you set your mind? Again, a choice. To live in the spirit, to live in the flesh. One leads to life, one leads to death. Trace that back. If you think and set your mind after the things of the Spirit, then you will be walking in the Spirit. But if your mind is in the gutter, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are, you'll be defeated again and again by the flesh. It depends which one you feed. And what you feed is what's in your mind. Now, controlling the mind is a tough thing because all sin is locked into our head. All sin involves what we think because every sin that you do started with a thought. Now, people might argue with that and go, no, sometimes a sin just pops up before I'm even thinking about it. But, you know, all of a sudden somebody cuts you off on the road and boom, you sin. But probably you've already been allowing yourself those kinds of thoughts. It's just something comes out that's a little extra. Sin is always conceived in the mind. And so we have to learn to think differently. Now later in one of the great passages in Romans in chapter 12, where Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says in verse 2 there in Romans 12, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if we are going to change, now you go, I don't want to change. Then you're not a Christian. It's one of the simplest ways of knowing whether you're a Christian or not. Do you want to change? There are some people who think they're really mature Christians and they're fine the way they are. If I ever stop wanting to change, I'll have to question, am I really a child of God? Because the Christian life is a lifelong transformative process. 
Becoming a Christian means I don't, I'm not good the way I am. I want to be different. I want to be better. I want to improve. And that desire is what brings us to Christ, what brings us to accept Jesus. Now, if we are going to change them, then somehow we have to change the way we think. Remember we were talking about, I think it was Sunday, um, or it was at the Good Friday service, um, where, you know, um, Peter was, uh, and the, let's see, the, um, it was the time when uh, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to have to die and rise again three days later, and Peter rebuked him, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, it was, that was pretty embarrassing to Peter, who thought he had spoken up bravely. But he said, you're thinking like a man, not like God. Your head is oriented in the wrong direction, in other words. Now, we need to understand that, that if we continue to think the same way we've always thought, we're going to continue to do what we've always done. Because we get in a horrible rut. Our minds are, are where our habits are formed. The mind's really an amazing thing. The brain itself, not to mention the mind, is an amazing piece of equipment. There are all these little neurological pathways and patterns that happen, and they string together, and we are able to, without really being conscious of it even, generate these long sequences of, of actions and events that the fact that you know how to get home tonight in the dark and with all the, you go out and you remember how to start your car and how to get out of the parking lot and you may remember that, oh yeah, you have to go right out here and then do a U-turn in order to go that way and I need to go past this signal and make this turn and then this one and look out for that and I and then get home and Remember how to open your door and go up and change and get into bed. I mean, you have about a thousand little tiny tasks that you'll do just to get home from church. And all of that is programmed into your brain. And after you do it a few times, it just happens automatically. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. It's great how much information we are able to store within our minds. It's amazing when you think of the number of song lyrics that you know or you know how you go watch your favorite tv show and you know all the characters names and all the actors names and you remember what happened on season three and you're it's like wow and no one tries to do that no one goes home and studies their notes so that they can learn about 24 and what's been happening with jack bauer it's just you watch it, it's in your head, and it's there. And, I mean, this last week they brought back Jack's daughter. She hasn't been on there in a long time, but I'm like, yeah, we have a history together. I remember when she was on the show before. <laughs> but the same thing that makes the mind so amazing is also our downfall. Because we form habits of thinking and we just naturally do what we've always done. And so if there's a certain activity that generally, you know, if you're used to eating dessert after dinner, and yet you decide, you know what, dessert's killing me. You eat dinner and you feel like something's missing. I need something else. And sometimes you can just get ravenous about it. And because of those patterns that are there in our brain, those habits that we forced. What walking in the spirit is about in a physiological sense is being willing to change those patterns and to think in a different way. We can't always control our mind, but we can decide to set our mind after the things of the spirit instead of after the things of the flesh. And there are certain things that we can do that will highly influence what comes out. It's, you know, in the computer world, they used to talk about G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. 
Whatever you program in the computer, that's what comes out of it. And so certainly if I want to change, but I continue to digest the same material, then what I digest is going to have a great influence on what ultimately comes out in terms of my lifestyle. If I'm constantly um, reading garbage, then that's the way I'm going to think. If I love you know, watching romantic you know, movies, then certainly I'm more likely to expect that in my life, to judge people in my life based on how they measure up to what I saw in the movie, um, to be suspicious because everyone in all those chick flicks is really unfaithful. And so, you know, I'm going to expect that and I'm going to be real paranoid and all. It just, it kind of goes with it. What we, what we take in. Now, on the other hand, if we are reading God's word and we're talking to each other about how good God is and, and we're programming that in, that has an effect. Now, there isn't any way that you can completely eliminate the garbage that's already in your head, or even to quite a degree, you can't even eliminate the fact that a bunch more garbage is going to go into your head because we're living in the world, and that's just the way it is. You can try to separate yourself from those things that would put garbage back in, and that sometimes in and of itself becomes a real legalistic sort of thing. But what it causes us to do is then to be separated from the world so much so that we're not able to relate to people in the world and therefore we're living in a kind of a cloistered sort of existence where we aren't accomplishing anything and there's really no point in us being alive except waiting to go be with the Lord. Um, but the best thing to do is instead of constantly trying to guard yourself from wrong input, as important as that is, how much of the good input are you going to put in there? Because, you know, you can get purity by, by straining. You can get purity by filtering. Or you can get purity by dilution. And the more that you take in of the Spirit... The more you're thinking about God, the more you're praying, the more you're fellowshipping, the more you're studying the word, the more you have you know, Bible studies you know, that you're listening to, the more you go to church, you take in things of the Spirit and it will have a tendency to dilute that which came in or that which you've had in there from the flesh. I mean, it's a really cool thing when there have been times when you know, and I'm not a big TV person, but there are certain shows I watch. I don't keep myself from television completely. But sometimes I'll be dreaming, and I'm sharing the Lord with some character on television. And I'm, or like I'm, you know, praying with Jack Bauer or something like that. <laughs> and, I, and, and it's like, whoa, the spirit and, and the world are kind of blending in there. And that's not a bad thing, I mean, to program ourselves to think that way. And, and uh, so, but it's a decision. Where's your mind going to go? What are you programming into your mind? I'm grateful for the fact that the whole time I was growing up, though, I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I really didn't know him. But I loved reading the Bible and reading theology and memorizing scripture and things like that. And And that still serves me well. I'm still blessed that... So much of that is still in there. And once you then find the Lord and, and then you discover what walking in the Spirit is, you have some raw materials to work with. But it all comes down to our mind, how we think. And so that's what Paul says here. Carnal mind is enmity. And by the way, the carnal mind is death. The spiritual mind is life and peace. So... How's your mind doing? Well, what, are you thinking more thoughts of life and peace? Or are you thinking more thoughts of death? You know, and, and is it all negative thoughts that you're thinking? Well, maybe your mind is getting a little bit too much of that in there. But are you thinking about life and peace and looking for ways to bless others? Then, 
you know, that's a great sign. The carnal mind is against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you just live your life just like you did before you became a Christian, if you just live your life the same way everyone else in this world does, you can't please God. It just doesn't work that way. You can't make yourself a good person. And it's important for us to remember we cannot influence non-Christians and try to make them act like Christians. We can't pass laws that are going to turn our society into a more righteous society. What we need isn't more Christians being politically active and bringing in more righteous laws. I, you know, it would be nice if we got some really on-fire, spirit-filled Christian politicians, but that might just be an oxymoron anyway. Um, Anyone who really loves God can probably find something better to do with their life than run for office and try to please people and try to get votes and all those things. But I'm not judging those who God has led them to do that. All I'm saying is we have had times when it looked like, wow, look at all these Christians winning. Look, we've got a majority in Congress or whatever. It didn't make our country a better country. It didn't make people more righteous at all. If anything, it promoted arrogance and selfishness and, and things like that. What we need in our country simply is for people to accept Jesus Christ, to hear the gospel, and to respond to the gospel. You cannot make people who don't have the Spirit in them walk in the Spirit. And so they're not going to be able to change. You're not going to change society with laws we have our, our, our country has thousands and thousands and thousands of laws and intricate explanations and case law and all that sort of thing, and it's not making our people any better than they ever were. Law is there to try to keep people from completely abusing others, and it's a good thing that it's there, but when it comes to really fixing what's wrong with people, the solution is a spiritual solution, not a political solution, which is why Jesus said that his kingdom wasn't of this world, and he resisted becoming an influential political leader himself, even though he certainly could have been very influential that way, but instead he chose to, to die because that's what we really needed. Can't please God if you're in the flesh, but... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. I like this verse a lot because it's talking about being in the flesh or being in the Spirit. And often we even use those phrases as being, if you're in the Spirit, you're some super spiritual kind of person who's always listening to God, and if you're in the flesh, you're listening to your flesh. And we would think, boy, sometimes I'm in the flesh, sometimes I'm in the Spirit. But Paul says, no, if you're a Christian, you're in the Spirit. You're in the Spirit because the Spirit's in you. I remember one time years ago, after Pastor Chuck was teaching, um, people would come up front to ask him questions, and, and a guy was talking to Chuck, and he said, Chuck, tell me the truth. Tonight, were you in the flesh or were you in the spirit? And Chuck said, I was in the spirit. Chuck, tell the truth. I could discern, were you in the flesh or were you in the spirit? And Chuck said, I was in the spirit. And the guy asked him a third time and Chuck said to him, I have a question for you. He said, um, who will bring a charge against God's elect? We're here from Romans 8. The guy didn't say anything. And he goes, Chuck goes, another question. Who's the accuser of the brethren? <laughs> and the guy just turned around and walked away. <laughs> and we're all like, what you're doing. Ooh. <clears throat> Being in the spirit 
is not because right at the moment you're doing exactly what the Spirit wants you to do. Something happened when you became a Christian, if you're really a Christian, and the Holy Spirit is inside you. You know, it's not something you wait for. It's not something that's only for spiritual people. As Paul says there, and it's an important verse, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, and therefore you are in the Spirit. So this isn't a higher form of living. It's the normal Christian life. But what we have to understand is, I am in the Spirit. I am not in the flesh. Because even though we are in the Spirit, we can continue to live like we are in the flesh, to walk like we are in the flesh, to continue to do the same stupid things that we did before we became a Christian. And, and you can live like that if you want. But his appeal to them is, you're in the Spirit. And notice he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit. He calls him the Spirit of Christ. Um, and then in verse 10 he says, Christ is in you, talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is life. In verse 11, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So there he's the Spirit connected to the Father. Um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all seen here, all in the Spirit. Now, this isn't what is called modalism. There are some people who try to explain the Trinity by believing that Sometimes God appears as the Son, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. But there's just one God, and he, he's like Clark Kent and Superman. You never see them both together. And that's a, a heresy, because we see many times, and here also, how the members of the Trinity are so close that when one is there, they are all there. They're partners they are one God, and yet they are three persons. Now, I'd like to explain that for you further, but I can't. But the Bible just makes that very clear that it's true, and anyone who believes the Bible believes that. To simplify it to a, a modalism is a mistake. And there are some people who are well-meaning people who fall into this, including men like T.D. Jakes, who tends towards a modalism. It's an honest mistake. When you try to understand what the Bible says about God, God's so big, if you try to explain him too much, you're probably going to be wrong. But um, the Bible is very clear that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all God. They aren't separate. They are distinct. They're all working together. And this little passage here, these few verses, go into that. But he says... If the Spirit of God dwells in you, in other words, if you're a Christian, you're in the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So he goes, really, when it comes down to it, because of the new life that you've had in Christ, the old life is dead. Sin is dead to you. You need to understand that you are dead to sin. That's a part of your past. Now, you can dabble in it. You can go back and go into it. That doesn't change who you are. When we sin, we are only living inconsistently with who God has made us. Um, I can go through a, you know, every once in a while see some cool toy that I always wanted when I was a kid and I never got and it's on eBay for like a whole bunch of money and I'll sit there and watch it and think about it and I one of them that for several years I was watching um, remember the old TV show in the 60s The Rifleman with Lucas McCain <coughs> he had this cool rifle where it had a, uh, the, the little guard on it was round and he could spin the rifle and when he spin, would spin it, it would automatically cock the rifle. And then it also had a little swivel thing on the guard so that he could cock it and shoot it in rapid fire. Now, nothing as cool as the automatic weapons of today, but it was pretty cool for back then. And as a kid, you know, you can see how times have changed. 
they thought it was a very wholesome thing for us to watch every week to see Lucas McCain shooting a lot of people. <laughs> and the cool thing about Lucas is, too, with that rifle, if there was one guy who pulled a gun on him, he would shoot him and, like, five of his buddies who were standing there not doing anything. And, but in honor of Lucas McCain, Chuck Connors, who used to play first base for the Dodgers, um, they made this, there was a toy company called Hubley, and they made a rifle called the Flip Special that was the rifleman's rifle. And it was a very cool cap gun. When I was a kid, I really wanted one. I've really never forgiven my mom for never getting me one. But <laughs> a few years ago, I like noticed them on eBay. And you could get, I saw a brand new one once for like 400 bucks, still in the box. But, you know, in the $200 range, you could get a halfway decent one. But I'm like, yeah, it'd be cool to have kind of, but I mean, it's this little rifle. It's only 18 inches long and it's a toy and... You know, where do you buy caps nowadays? And who am I going to play with? And it's like, I have plenty of real rifles, you know? And I, it's, but I kind of wanted it and kind of, well, that's sort of our relationship to sin. Now, if I bought the rifle and I go out in my backyard and shoot it and stuff and play rifleman and have the music, you know, fire up and, Pretend, I'd learned to do it left-handed because he was Lucas was left-handed. Um, it still wouldn't make me a kid. In fact, it would be kind of sad if you know you came over to our house and I was out in the backyard playing with my flip special. You grow up and you decide now if someday when I get grandkids. I might buy one for my grandkid. <laughs> That's the way you do that. But, but when we, we're dead to sin, that's a part of our past. We quit destroying ourselves when we became Christians. We got on a different path. And when we live in sin, it's like an adult playing with a toy rifle. It just doesn't fit. It's just not appropriate. It's goofy. It'll never satisfy you like it would have back then. Same reason why I don't have a mini bike nowadays. I mean, I, mini bikes were fun at the time, but, you know, I don't want a mini bike now. I've outgrown that in more ways than one. But, sorry if you have a mini bike and still enjoy it. But, um, or a flip special. But, um, that's where we are to sin. We are to have made up our minds that I'm dead to sin. That is a part of my past. And when I see myself acting the way I used to, I ought to be embarrassed. I ought to feel like this is out of sync with who I am. This is out of sync with what God's doing in my life. I have the Holy Spirit in me. What am I doing this for? And just just to feel foolish living that way. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit of God could raise Jesus from the dead... Then, the, then there's hope for us. When we keep acting like little kids, when it's time for us to grow up and to put ourselves dead to sin, the power of the resurrection it is, is at our disposal to give us a new life now and to know that we will one day rise from the dead after we die. But here in the context, he's saying, there's hope for your life to change. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in your life. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't owe anything to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. It'll still kill you to live that way. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, the pathway to life for us 
who have the Spirit of God in us, is to put sin out of the way. To not give it reign and rule in our lives, but to realize, no, I want life. I, I've chosen life. I've chosen to move away from death, and I reject that. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now that's an interesting verse that you should make note of too. Because sometimes we think, well, sometimes I'm led by the Spirit and sometimes I'm not. Some people are really led by the Spirit and some people really aren't. No, it's not true. If you are a child of God, you are being led by the Spirit. You don't need to pray to be led by the Spirit. You are being led by the Spirit if you're a child of God. Now you go, I don't know. No, you're being led. He is speaking to you constantly. The question is, will you listen to him? In every situation, he is leading you if you're his child. But there are other people who try to lead you too, who pretend to lead, and, and you are so prone and habit-formed in following after other voices that sometimes you can't even hear the Spirit of God as he is trying to lead you. But he is speaking to you. And you don't need someone else to tell you what he wants you to know. He's speaking. He, he is or you're not a Christian. But what we need to do is to make up our minds that when he leads us, we want to follow. The biggest thing of, of decision-making for a Christian is, am I willing to do whatever he tells me to do? If you're not... If you're like, well, I'll do certain things, but there are some things I certainly won't do, then you're not going to hear his voice because you're going to hear whatever you want to hear. But if you're willing and you've made up your mind and you've set your mind after the things of the Spirit, now it's just a question of hearing what he wants you to do and doing it. Sometimes you might think the Spirit was leading you to do something. Well, what did it lead to? Did it lead to life or did it lead to death? Did it lead to freedom or did it lead to slavery? Well, maybe you were wrong. The Spirit wasn't wrong. But maybe you thought it was the Spirit when it wasn't. But He is leading you. There are messages from Him in His Word, from other people. As you talk to Him, He's telling you things. And some of us become so good at ignoring what the Spirit says that we don't even know He's talking to us. But he is. The Spirit is leading, and the Spirit-filled life is a life that allows the Spirit to lead and that does what the Spirit tells you to do, that has that as your primary motivation and concern, and that's how you make your decisions, and that's how you live your life. You get up in the morning and you go, I want to be led by the Spirit. God, I know you are leading me. Here I go. And Again, to just make that what you want to do, make that how you live. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, or Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. One thing that the Spirit is doing is it's bearing witness with our spirit as we cry out to God as our dad, as we cry out to him and say, Abba, Father, the Spirit is confirming that and saying that with us is in our prayers, in, in the way that we look to him, the Holy Spirit is there with us confirming what we're doing, leading us even as we are crying out to God. And he goes on to talk about how the Spirit helps us in our prayers and everything too. But at, at this point, it's our connection with God. Now, if you are never spending time with God devotionally, if there isn't ever a time when you just 
open your heart and say, Abba, Father, I, I need you. I, I want to be closer to you. I want to hear from you. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'm praising you. I thank you for who you are, for what you've done. If you never do that, then you're missing out on a great opportunity to connect with the Spirit of God. Because as you begin to cry out to God as your Father, the Spirit draws closer to your sense of awareness of who He is, and you connect with Him. And very often, what starts out as Daddy ends up with Daddy telling you something that He wants you to do. That turns out to be one of the best decisions that you ever made, one of the smartest things that you've ever done was led by the Spirit as the Spirit bore witness with your spirit because you were just enjoying the relationship, because you're connecting with Him as your Father. For some people, this is a difficult thing because maybe they didn't have a great relationship with their own Father. And that is hard. It was a, it's a difficult thing for me because my father, I loved my dad, but my dad was mentally ill and really crazy, and uh, he was very abusive, and I was afraid of my dad. And the way I, I was my dad's favorite, we had five kids, and I was the favorite by far. No one even pretended like I wasn't, frankly, with my mom and my dad. But with my dad, I became the favorite because I did the things that he wanted me to do. And I learned the Bible, and I would go out and preach on street corners, and I would memorize, and I would go, whatever my dad wanted to do, that's what I did. But it was a totally legal relationship, because on a whim, my dad would just fly off the handle and beat me. And sometimes he would just disappear, and I wouldn't see him for months. Other times he'd be in the mental hospital, and the only time I would get to see him would be those weird times when he would get in my face as we were out in the, in the playground or the parking lot there at the state hospital, and he would make me say over and over again, Daddy is not sick. And I would say it knowing that Daddy was sick because that was everyone's explanation as to why my dad was so weird. Well, you're, you know, your daddy's sick, and now I'm going, Daddy is not sick. And so it, it taught me a relationship of legalism. If you do the right things, if you do things better than everyone else, that, you know, your dad's going to buy you a lot of stuff and he's going to approve of you. And so to come into a relationship with my heavenly father wasn't an easy thing. I probably, when I became a Christian, I pretty much became an adult and overnight. And my relationship to God was, let me help you out. And I thought that I could please God if I would do enough stuff. And to a degree, I, I'm still haunted by that kind of thinking. It's still hard for me to think of God as my daddy. But when I do, and it's so important that we all do, whatever, whatever your earthly dad was, if you, if you were blessed with a great dad, that's awesome. And that can help you connect with who God is. But if, if you didn't have such a great dad, then just think about what your life could have been like if you had a great dad. What if your dad had been everything he should have been to you? Because that's what your heavenly father is. He is everything you wished your dad was. He is everything if your dad was in his right mind and knew God and loved God, and that's what he would have been to you. Hopefully he is what you are to your children, if you have kids, but you know, with that heart, but whichever it is, it's so important that we connect with God as our daddy, as the one who, a dad isn't, a real dad doesn't try to get anything from his kids. A real dad only wants to give to his kids, wants to bless his kids, wants to ultimately give everything to his kids. That's what, that's what a real dad does. That's what our dad, our heavenly father wants for us and he doesn't manipulate us he doesn't abuse us he doesn't mess with us and try to make us make him look good he, he's not worried about whether he looks good or not 
What he wants is for us to be blessed. When we begin to connect with him in that kind of a relationship, we are beginning to live life in the spirit. We're beginning to connect with him in a way that then the spirit connects us together and the spirit lets us know that connection has been made and God is within us and he is fulfilling everything that he desires to do in our lives. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. That's an amazing thing. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What he has for you, what he has for me, plans that he has for us, what he wants to give us, it's all a part of our inheritance as children of God. He has adopted us, but we're also born again. He's our father. He's our daddy. He just wants to love us and hold us and protect us. Everything that that means, that's who he is and wants to be for us. And then he says, everything that I have is for you. Everything. All the riches of heaven, all of the blessings of eternity, all of the greatest plans that you could ever know, they're yours. Bought and paid for, you are an heir. Now, an heir is someone who usually has something now, but what they have now is a down payment, really, of what they are going to have. And that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. He's, he's called our down payment, our earnest. Um, and what God wants to do in our lives right now by the Spirit is just the tip of the iceberg of what he will ultimately want to do. But we need to, we desperately need to make that connection with him. If you are threatened by a relationship with the Holy Spirit, if you're threatened by being led by the Spirit, by being loved by the Spirit, by, by being in communion with the Spirit, um, if all that just is it's getting a little too personal, then you'll never find out what it is to have victory over sin. You will be a, a victim for the rest of your life until you recognize that it's a real living relationship where he talks to you, he tells you that you're loved, and he listens to you, and he leads and guides you, he gives you advice, and his advice always works out really well. And he, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. You're never alone. You never have that feeling that nobody gets it because you're spending your days and your nights with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's always with you. And discovering that on a personal level is just, well, that's what a victorious life, a free life, a joyful life is all about. To have the courage to let go of being in charge yourself and then to just allow the Spirit of God to be close to you, to get inside you where you don't let anybody else, and to uncover things in you that you don't like to think about, and to talk to him about your failure, to talk to him about your frustration, to confess your sins to him, and to have him just hold you in his arms as you tell him what a failure you are, and he reminds you of the fact that Jesus already paid for that and, and it's not affecting your relationship. He loves you. That's the only kind of life that works. That's the only kind of life that really wins out overall. And frankly, that's the only kind of life that will allow you to improve. Your life's never going to get better. The law of entropy kicks in devolution you're going to get worse unless you get plugged in with the spirit of god and let him work in your life and it is a scary thing 
The only thing scarier than giving the spirit control of your life is to think about what you're going to do with it if you don't. Because <laughs> that's bad news. We'll continue next week and at least finish up this eighth chapter, hopefully. Um, but let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit who is such a blessing to us that Jesus said it's a better deal for us when he leaves and the Spirit comes than it would be if he would stay forever. And God, sorry, we don't take advantage of what you've offered us so often. We don't commune with you. We we don't feel close to you. We don't listen to you as you lead us. We don't allow you to intercede. We're just trying to hang on and endure life, and, and yet we're in the Spirit, living like we aren't, wasting the blessed opportunities that you give us. Oh, please help us to learn to really walk in victory in the Spirit, to walk in the freedom of the Spirit, to turn our backs on the way we used to live, to grow up away from all the toys, away from the nonsense. Help us to learn to connect on a spirit level with the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.